Good morning. Uh, I am really glad to be here. How about you guys? I was uh, I was in Rock County last week, and I loved being there. It was really neat uh, to be there. It's really cool. Uh, their church, the Holy Spirit is just moving there in a powerful way, and, and I'm excited about the future for there, and so it was great to be there. But um, I miss you guys, and uh, I miss being here, and I miss being a part of the service here in Bayview. And so I am I'm glad to be here. I, I don't know why you people ever miss. You, you should be here every Sunday. I mean, I'm here every Sunday, and I mean, I get paid to be here every Sunday, but even if I wasn't, I would be here every Sunday, so don't miss it. And then also make sure, as, as, as uh, Nathan said, don't, don't miss tonight the gathering. Uh, we'd love for you guys to come. If by chance, make sure you register. If you don't, and in the middle of your day, you're like, oh, I can't go because I didn't register. Just show up anyways. We want you here. 4.30, like you said, is when registration starts, and we're just going to have some time to kind of share what God's been doing and where God's taking us. But I really am anticipating um, the Holy Spirit moving in a powerful way tonight as we come together and worship and pray. So, so please make sure you're there. Uh, we are diving back into our series entitled Shadows, uh, the study in, in the book of Hebrews. And if you guys remember, it's been a while since, we've, since we've, we've been in the middle of this series. We started it a while ago. We took, took a break as we got through the holidays. And we're coming back in and we're, we're landing back in as we discuss this idea of, of the work of Jesus Christ being superior to the Old Covenant. The work of Jesus Christ, the, the work of the New Covenant versus, versus the Old Covenant, the work of the New Testament versus the work of the Old Testament. How Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of it. He is superior to it. That, that the Old Covenant, that the Old Law was, it was a foreshadowing of the work that Jesus Christ would do. That the laws and the rituals of the Old Testament were just pointing to the work of Jesus Christ. And so therefore, his work of redemption is superior to what we see in the Old Testament. So the, so the foundation for the conversation is the eternal, transcendent work of Jesus Christ. That he's at the center of this conversation. That everything we see from Genesis to Revelation is really about Jesus Christ, what Jesus Christ has done, what Jesus Christ is doing his work. And that's an important uh, conversation. That's an important foundation. That's an, that's an important background information, I think, in, in particular to the passage we walk into this morning. You see, we're moving back into chapter 12. Chapter 12 is a passage that we started in on uh, prior to the holidays. And it's important for us to remember that chapter 12 is coming out of chapter 11, right? How many, guys, how many guys know what, what Hebrews chapter 11 is? The faith chapter, right? It's, it's, it's known as kind of the hall of fame of faith because the chapter walks us through all of these different people who exhibited incredible faith. It talks glowingly about people coming, coming, uh, people coming before God and, and living for God in, in a way that was generated by their faith. It speaks about Abel and Noah and Abraham and Sarah. It speaks about Isaac and Jacob and Moses and, and Joshua and Rahab. It speaks about the faith of, of men like Samson and David. Each one of these, is, as you hear this, each one of these experienced such victory through their faith. You can have story after story after story after story. Each one of these did amazing things. They, they parted seas. They, they, they knocked down by faith the walls of Jericho. 
They, they, they found victory after victory after victory after victory after victory after victory because of their faith. But do you guys also remember who the chapter talks about? That, the, that this, this faith chapter, this, this hall of fame of faith chapter, it also spoke about people whose faith, who had faith, but, but it didn't go quite as well for them. It talks about people who, who had faith, and it says some were tortured. Some suffered mocking and flogging and imprisonment. Some were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. Some wandered about in, in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. And the chapter says, of these, these people of faith, the world was not worthy of them. Even these people, it says, they were people of faith. And so this is the foundation. This is, this is the, the, the place setting as we jump back into chapter 12. Before we do that, if we would join me in prayer as we ask God's blessing on his word this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that we have the great gift of your word, that we have the ability to step in and hear straight from the voice of Christ, straight from the voice of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit to each one of us. I pray, Lord, that we would open up our hearts and our minds, that your word would transform us this morning. In your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Therefore, since we are surrounded by by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. This is how chapter 12 begins. And I want to stop there for a moment and remind you of the impact this declaration should have on us. Coming out of chapter 11, coming out of the the faith chapter, coming out of the chapter that describes these great men and great women of faith who had found, who had discovered great victories, who who experienced great, uh, great struggles. These ones who, who suffered so greatly, eventually receiving their great reward. The author points us to that cloud of witnesses in this declaration, right? It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a cloud of witnesses, by so, such a cloud of people, by such a cloud of individuals who lived by faith, since we're surrounded by this cloud, this congregation, this, this, this crowd of people, he's saying, find inspiration of faith from these people. He's saying, consider their life, consider how they live, consider their faith. As he encouraged us into the race. He says, find encouragement from their faith. I love the way that John Piper comments on this passage because he says, we look and we see examples of faith and perseverance under every imaginable circumstance. There's David who committed adultery and murder, and he finished. There's John the Baptist who had had a weird personality. And he finished. There's John Mark, the quitter. And he finished. And Mary, the prostitute, and she finished. And and William Carey, the plotter, and he finished. And Jonathan Edwards, who got kicked out of his church, and he finished. And Job, who, who suffered so much. 
and he finished. And Stephen, who was hated and stoned, and he finished. You see, the foundation of chapter 11 is to walk us into the understanding that those who came before us and lived by faith were able to finish because of the power of God in their lives, because of the faith that they had in the power of God. Since we have such a cloud of witnesses, let us run the race. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely. It's interesting. What is that faith inspiration supposed to lead us to? What is that, what is that faith supposed to take us to? Since we are surrounded by so cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. After looking to the cloud of witnesses that have endured every circumstance, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. He says, look, look at those around you. Look at those who came before you. Look at those who lived by faith. And he says, as you get inspiration from their faith, he says, let's now do something. Let's, let's lay aside that which slows us down so you can finish the race. He calls us to action. Throwing off weights, throwing off sins. He calls us inspired by the faith of those around us to get things out of our lives that, that, which, which, which make us worldly-minded and, and, and put things into our lives that make us more heavenly-minded. It means to, to pray without ceasing. It means to, to hide God's Word in your heart and, and meditate it on day and night. It means, it means exhorting one another every day, taking up your cross daily, Reckoning yourself dead to sin. It means, it means putting to death the deeds of the body. It, it even means plucking out the eye of lust, fleeing fornication, yielding your members as instruments of righteousness. It means presenting your bodies as living sacrifices. It means putting on the armor of God, resisting the devil, taking every thought captive to obey Christ. See, what he says here, what he lays out for us here is, look at the crowd of witnesses who lived by faith and set aside those things that get in your way, set aside those things that hinder, and put on in your life that which moves you forward in the race. It is a call to action. Since we are surrounded by a cloud of faithful witnesses, let's live Faithfully. This is the encouragement, right? But what's amazing about this passage for me is, as he calls us to look at the crowd, as he calls us to look at the cloud of witnesses who've lived so faithfully, and as he, out of that, says, now guys, it's time for you to live faithfully. It's time, it's time for you to do. It's time to, for you to put on action. It's time for you to set aside these things and, and run faithfully. It's amazing to me how quickly he calls us to take our eyes off of them, take our eyes off of us, and put our eyes on Jesus Christ. 
looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Where, where does the author of Hebrews focuses, focus our eyes ultimately? Yes, there is this, this crowd of witnesses that we can look to. And, and there's this call to, to set aside all that besets us as we run. But the focus ultimately arrives at Jesus. The call is ultimately, set your eyes on Jesus. The author wants to encourage us to look to Jesus, looking to Jesus. The pioneer and perfecter of our faith. He says, all right, there's this great crowd of people around us. There's this great crowd of witnesses. There's this great group of people that we can look to for inspiration. And as we find the same faith that they found, we can begin to take action and begin to run this race in a way that honors God, that, 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 that looks like the race that they ran. But ultimately, he says, but what you ultimately have to do is you need to fix your eyes on Jesus Christ because he is the perfecter of your faith because he is the author of your faith one of the translations puts it that way he says look to jesus christ the author and perfecter the author and finisher of your faith do you get the do you understand the the all-encompassing nature of that declaration Do you get the breadth of that description of who Jesus is that we set our eyes on? He is the author and the finisher of our faith. It is is started in Him. It It is born in Him. This this declaration manifests itself throughout our Christian experience. He has given a foundation of our faith from the start to the finish. Our redemption, the foundation of our faith, is complete because of Jesus Christ. He is the founder and perfecter of our faith. And He is that because He has given us the, he, he is, he has given us the model of how to live it out. You see, he is the author in that, in that he laid everything out for us. He set the example for us. He then be, provided for us the means of our redemption. And now we stand in this place running the race, and he says, I want you to look to him because in him is the completion of your salvation. In him is the completion of your gospel life. In him is how you will finish this thing. Set your eyes on Him because He has the beginning and the end of what He's calling you to do and be. Set your eyes on Him. There's so many ways in Scripture that Jesus Christ Himself is the instruction. That He's the instruction. 
all throughout Scripture. It says we are told to love as Christ loved. We're, we're told to forgive as Christ forgave us. We're told to sacrifice as Christ sacrificed. We're, we are called to endure as Christ endured, to pray as Christ prayed, to humble ourselves as Christ humbled himself, to give the way he gave. You see, the image of the Christian life, the image of the Christian race, the image of the Christian walk is Jesus Christ because he is the author and finisher of our faith. You can't be a Christian. You can't live out the Christian life. You can't be a Christian if your eyes are not fixed on him and follow after him. This is what he's saying to us. Over and over and over and over in Scripture. The heart of Scripture is the image of Christ set before us. This itself is the heart of the gospel life. We must follow Him. We must look to Him and we must put our feet in His footprints. We must, we must have the attitude that he had. We must, we, we, we must have the, the, the life that he lived. He is our example. Now, as I say, all throughout Scripture, there are these encouragements to follow after him. But what I love specifically about this morning's text is that, the passage we, that here in the passage we read, there is revealed the image of Christ in a way that is meant to provide the strength for the long haul. There is, there is revealed here the, the picture of Christ, the example of Christ, that is meant to encourage you when you feel worn out. When you feel like, like you can't do it anymore. When you feel like you can't continue in this way anymore. Do you guys identify with what I'm saying? Have you ever walked that walk? Have you ever followed the way that you're supposed to follow? Have you ever lived that Jesus Christ way and, and, and gone to the point where you're like, I, I, I can't do this anymore? Listen, I can forgive like Christ for, forgave. And I can forgive again like Christ forgave. And then I can forgive again like Christ forgave. And then I can forgive again like Christ forgave. And then I can forgive again like Christ forgave. And then I can give again like Christ forgave. And then I'm done. Right? Right? How many times? Oh, that's fine. Yeah, that's fine. I forgive you. I forgive you. I forgive you. I forgive you! I can't have this person in my life anymore. I'm done. I can humble myself like Christ humbled himself. I can humble myself like Christ humbled himself. I can humble myself like Christ humbled himself, I can, you know, screw it. I'm done with you. So often we get to that point, right? And then, and then in that moment, we, we justify our departure from the image of Christ. We go, well, I've done it. Not only did I do it once, man, I did it twice. I did it three times, I did it four times, I did it five times. At a certain point, I'm done. And we don't endure anymore, right? We don't continue anymore, right? 
But, but that doesn't really cut it, does it? When I look to the image of Jesus Christ, that doesn't really cut it, does it? So that's why the, 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 the author of Hebrews shows us how to stay in it for the long haul. And he does it by moving our eyes specifically to an aspect of the life of Jesus Christ that calls us to long endurance. In fact, there are two specific areas that, that I think are probably the two areas that we most struggle with, the two areas that, that most wear us down, the two areas that so often in our lives we find ourselves willing to give up on. And the author of Hebrews, in his wisdom and in his grace, addresses them directly as he calls us to look to Jesus Christ. And the first one is this, enduring sinners. He says, looking to Jesus, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Did you guys hear that? Okay, did you hear that and identify with that? Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. How many of you guys know sinners? How, how, how many of you guys work with sinners? How, 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 many, how many of you guys live with sinners? How many of you are sinners? Now understand something. Just as a side note, I want to say this so that, so that nobody mis- misconstrues what I'm saying. I know, I know that if you are a Christian, we are sinners saved by grace. And I know that as we become Christians... That, that, that we become new creations in Jesus Christ. So, so we're not sinners in that same regard. But I ask that question when I say, are you still a sinner? In the spirit of Martin Luther's declaration, simul justus et peccator. Or, at the same time, just and also sinner. In other words, I get it that we are Christians. But I also believe we understand We understand what it is to live and do things that are sinful. And we understand what it is to endure the sinful behavior of others. Even Christians. What is it what 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 it is like to face we understand what it is like to, to face the brokenness of others and to suffer the hostility, the the injustice the mistreatment of others. How many of you guys know what I'm talking about? You ever been there? I mean, it's almost impossible to live this life and not be placed in a place in which, in which you, you face the brokenness of others, you, you suffer the hostility of others, the injustice and the mistreatment. And how many of you feel worn out by it? How many of you even now maybe are in a situation in which you find yourself and you're like, I'm up to here with it. I can't deal with this anymore. I can't do it anymore. How many of you sit and you, maybe even today you said, you know what, this isn't fair. This, this isn't right. I don't deserve to be treated this way. 
But what's the call of Hebrews? What does Hebrews say? Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. For what reason? Why does he say, consider what Jesus Christ endured from sinners? The hostility he endured from sinners. So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. You see, I believe this is an encouragement that must be reiterated specifically within the culture we now live. We we have become so self-absorbed, so self-concerned, so self-protective that we have little ability to endure the hostility of sinners, to endure the brokenness of the broken, to endure the hurt from the hurting. Honestly, I I cannot tell you how frustrating it is for me to look at the American Christian mindset that says we can't tolerate toxic people in our lives. That that, that we need to cut them out because we won't be able to become all God wants uh, wants you to be if, if you have these toxic people in your life. Have you heard this? I had a conversation with a friend of mine who was sharing with me about a conversation he was having with a friend of his. And this friend of his was a, was a believer, somebody who, who follows Jesus and knows Christ, has been raised in him and considers himself a Christian. But he began to like cut people out of their lives that they said, were, well, they're selfish and they, and they don't know how to treat me right, so I'm going to cut them out of their lives. And when confronted with that, their answer was, well, I can't be everything that God has called me to be with this person in my life. What do you think God has called you to be? What do you think God wants you to do? He wants you to live out Jesus. He wants you to live out the gospel. He wants you to bring healing to the broken the way he brought healing to the broken. He wants you to bring redemption to the hurting the way he brought redemption to the hurting. He wants you to bring love and grace and patience. Consider Jesus. Do you know who's toxic? You are. Do you know who's toxic? I am. And it was our toxicity that called to Jesus Christ to come to this earth. It was our toxicity that put Jesus on the cross. You see, Jesus understood the toxic nature of our sin that was bringing destruction to ourselves and to others, and he didn't run from that toxicity. He stepped into that toxicity to redeem it. Consider Jesus. You see, it is our calling to affect those around us, not to be affected by them. Do you understand that? You hear what I'm saying? If you are allowing other people's sinfulness, other people's hurtfulness, other people's brokenness to affect your Christ-likeness, then you have given broken people more sway over your life than you've given the Spirit of God. My strength is not in someone else. My, my, my ability to live to live in victory, my ability to live in grace, my ability to live in peace should not rest in the hands of those around us. It should rest in the touch of the Spirit of God in me. Am I right? The Christian is not called to be a thermometer. 
adjusting the temperature of those around us. But we are called to be thermostats that change the environment around us, bringing change to the hurting, bringing change to the broken, not being changed by them. If they are affecting you, it is not a reflection on their sinfulness, but a reflection on your spiritual weakness. And every time we see that happening in our lives, it should not be driving us away from people. It should be driving us to Jesus. It should be the sign to us that I don't have enough of the Spirit of God at work in my life. It should drive me to my knees. It should drive me to the Word. It should drive me to fellowship in Christ. It should drive me to prayer. When, when the brokenness of others is changing me, what it should do is it should, it should give a warning sign that I am not considering Jesus. I am not pressing into Jesus the way I need to. Spurgeon beautifully describes the call this way. No personal animosity ever ruffled the serenity of our great master's spirit. Moreover, he was never moved to take the slightest revenge Upon his foes, even for those who nailed him to the wood. He had no return but the prayer, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. And as he had no vengeance against them, so they exerted no evil influence upon him. He preserved in his life work just as much as if he had never been opposed. Like the sun that goes on in its strength, whether clouds hide it or whether it shines out of the blue serene, Christ continued in his heavenward way. We ought to admire the patient serenity with which he so beautifully held his peace. But ought we not also to admire the way in which he unswervingly kept his course? Many a man would have turned either to the right hand or to the left, But the heroic Savior keeps right on. Consider Jesus. He kept right on. He kept his plan. He kept stepping through and in in every circumstance, regardless of how sinners were attacking him. And he did it to redeem those who seemed unredeemable. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. And he did this to redeem the broken, to save the sinner from their sinful state. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Let me share with you guys something that I probably shouldn't share with you. I was at coffee with somebody from the church, someone who came from a, from a pastor's home, and we were sitting there talking, and he looked at me and he said, uh, do you like ministry? I mean, do you like being a pastor? And I said, yeah. I said, by and large, I, I love being a pastor. I love it because it's what God's called me to do. I love it because of the relationships. I love it because I'm able to be a part of people's lives and see people um, and be, see people changed. And, and I said, but by and large, I love, I love ministry. I said, the only thing about ministry that I, that I don't really like is how consistently you get stabbed in the back. So the one thing, I, I, the one thing that's hard for ministry for me is, 
is how consistently people that you pour your life into, people that you give time to, people that you invest in, people that you think uh, are there to, uh, that have your back, that actually will slip a knife in your back. How consistently you find yourself in a situation in ministry where every single person in your life has the potential uh, to betray you. And the reality is, that is, that is uh, what I've experienced in 20-some years. And consistently. Like, it's not, I mean, and varying degrees. You know, varying degrees. Like, I mean, on a regular basis. And, and, and as I was talking to him, I said, I said that I, I kind of go into ministry with that understanding. I go into that ministry, go into ministry understanding that no matter what relationship I have, that, that there, there is the potential there. And, and I know that sounds very pessimistic, but it's really not. It's what empowers me to do it. And, and, and I have this expectation, and I have this expectation because of this, because I consider Jesus. There are so many times where I find myself in that situation in which there was somebody that I invested in, somebody we cared for, somebody we loved on, somebody that we thought was there for us, and then all of a sudden, I, all of a sudden they betray you, or all of a sudden they say something about you, or all of a sudden they, they walk out on a relationship with you, whatever it might be. And, and because I'm, I'm pretty human, I, I still get that, that attitude and that heart and that idea of, you know what, that's not fair, that's not right. I don't deserve that betrayal. And what God has consistently, by, the, by his Spirit, shown me, he's given me this image of Jesus Christ walking up and saying, really? Huh, I wonder what that's like. As he reaches out his nail-scarred hands. And in that moment, in that moment, I have a little touch of who Jesus is. In that moment, I have a little taste of what he suffered. This, is, this, this was so central to the understanding of the first century church. This idea of not just, simply, not just simply looking to Jesus, but feeling what he felt, enduring what he endured. I consider it all a joy to share in the sufferings of Jesus Christ so that as I share in his sufferings, I might also share in his glory. You see, what empowers us to endure, what empowers us to not faint is considering Jesus Christ and his willingness to endure through it all so that we might be redeemed. Consider him who endured for sinners such hostility against himself so that you do not grow weary or faint-hearted. I embrace the calling to not simply live Jesus, but to share in his sufferings, to not simply follow after him, but feel the weight of the pain of the redemption of others. Consider Jesus and endure sinners so that the image of Jesus Christ may be revealed in your life and may be revealed to others in their lives. Consider Jesus. See, as, it, as we consider him and we look to him, the call is that we endure sinners. 
And I said earlier that there were two different areas, I think, specifically that we struggle in as our walk that, that, that wears us out, that wears us down. The first one is enduring sinners. And the second one is resisting sin. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. The first of the two areas the author of Hebrews draws our attention to that, that, that threatened to wear us out is enduring sinners. And I would say the second is resisting sin. There's a context related to the image of Christ that we have to bring into this declaration, right? Remember how the chapter starts? How does the chapter begin? He talks about us. He, says, he tells us to, 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 to uh, see the great crowd, right? The great crowd of witnesses around us. The great cloud of witnesses that live by faith. And he calls us to run the race and he says, Let us also lay aside every weight and what? Sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So he lays out this idea to, to, to start to endure, to not grow weary. We need to lay aside sin. We need to resist sin. We need to be, overcome sin. We need to defeat sin in our lives to endure for the long run, to not grow weary. Then as we, we come to verses 3 and 4, in your struggle to overcome sin, you haven't resisted to the point of shedding blood. Like who? Jesus. He says, consider Jesus when you're enduring the sin of sin, you're enduring sinners. And he says, consider Jesus in your resisting sin. Consider how, how he stood against sin, how he overcame sin to the point of shedding his blood. Here's the upshot. Christ's death on the cross was for the purpose of overcoming sin. It was his fight to defeat sin. Not on his behalf, but on yours. So he's saying, consider Jesus' sacrifice in your resistance to sin. Consider his sacrifice as he resisted sin. And he's saying, what you're being called to do doesn't come close to Christ's suffering, to Christ's endurance for your sin. He shed his blood to overcome your sin. What sacrifice, by comparison, is being asked of you in the resisting? Does it get close? I can't help but reminded of the words of Luther when he said, when I think of what Christ suffered, I am ashamed to call anything that I have endured suffering for his sake. For the sake of our sin, Christ carried his heavy cross. But we only carry a sliver or two. For the sake of our sin, 
He drank deeply the cup of suffering. And we are called to but a drop or two in the call to abstinence. The selfishness that that is a hallmark of human nature and that seems to be perfected in our culture calls us to self-indulgence over self-denial. And it is amazing in that context how quickly Christians in our culture find it burdensome or unfair or archaic to abstain from that which God's word declares as sin. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, I mean we, we, we have this place in which we're constantly trying to justify, well, that doesn't seem right. Well, that doesn't seem fair. Well, why shouldn't this and why can't that? And why wouldn't this person be able to do it? If you can do this and why can't And we're adults and we can do this for that. Oh, do you know what it's like to have to call people to not do this? Or do you know how hard it is for people not to do this or not to do that? Have you, in the resisting of this sin, have you yet shed blood for it? Or is it just simply self-denial? At the core of Christ's call is self-denial. You know that, right? I mean, everybody, everybody in Christendom, especially in America, it's all about, it's all about, all about sunshine and rainbows and making you happy and your, your, your human flourishing and whatever, whatever you want to do, go do it. This is Jesus Christ. This is Jesus Christ distilling his call to follow him. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself take up his cross daily and follow me. How many people want to be Christ followers? How many want to be Christ followers? What's the first obligation that Jesus Christ says? Deny yourself. In Matthew 19, when the disciples found Christ's call to fidelity in marriage to be a difficult thing, Jesus said of God's call to sexual purity, there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Do you hear that? The word translated here, eunuch, refers to celibacy. It's used in two different, in two different, in two different cases. And what Jesus is himself is saying, that sexual self-denial for the kingdom, for the glory of the kingdom of God, is well within the bounds of the call to be a Christ follower. But in this culture, it's like, oh, well, that just doesn't seem right. This is what most of our conversations are about, right? This is what it actually centers on. People should be able to have sex if they want to have sex. But Jesus Christ himself is saying, listen, this is well within the bounds of calling to be a Christ follower. This is what, this is what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 13. Let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify your desires. The image of Christ suffering on the cross for our sins should be all we need to call us to the submission of our fleshly desires for the glory of Jesus Christ. 
We struggle in this. And he says, consider Jesus. Who for the purpose of overcoming your sin, of defeating your sin, of bringing you to the point in which you have redemption with Jesus Christ, was willing to bleed and die. Consider Jesus. The laying aside of our sinful lives is nothing by the comparison to the work that Jesus Christ did for our redemption. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with the endurance, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. The call is to endure sinners and to resist sin. And the way in which we do that is by looking to Jesus, is by seeing Jesus, is by setting our eyes on Jesus. The strength, the power, the ability is continually and constantly by the power of the Holy Spirit in us seeing the image of Christ alive. There is no other calling for the Christian. There, there, there is no other path for the Christian. There is no other means for the Christian but to look, set our eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith.